Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. What does it take to lead the merger of two agency brands into one culturally aligned, growing business force that has quickly become one of Australia's leading media agencies? On episode 28 of The B-Side, I speak to Imogen Hewitt, CEO of Spark Foundry Australia, a true marketing powerhouse. She was listed on Campaign Asia's 2017 and 2020 Women to Watch list and has been recognised on BNT's Women in Media Power list every year since 2017. She talks about building a career, working in creative and media, and how this experience fostered her ability to think across disciplines and channels, giving her a hybrid strategic point of view, and how she has applied this strategic lens to the challenges faced as a new CEO. We discuss why there aren't more strategists and creatives in CEO roles, why marketers and marketing agencies aren't better at marketing themselves. We jam on what makes a successful client-agency relationship, how creative and media agencies can work better together, and the importance of having a deep understanding of our customers, the context they're in, and the value they derive from marketing interactions in order to create truly successful campaigns. Imogen is brilliant, down-to-earth and inspiring. It was so refreshing to hear her no-nonsense views on strategy, the industry, leadership, and what it takes to run a media agency during these challenging times. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat, and I'm sure you will too. Cheers. This is another one of our in-the-house sessions, and I am in the house. We're all still in lockdown with the wonderful Imogen Hewitt. How are you going, Imogen? I'm great. As great as you can be, having been locked in my house with my immediate family for getting on for nine weeks. I know. I was just thinking about how I started one of these in-the-house sessions. I thought it was so clever because it would be like this freak little sort of segue away from the standard podcast back in April 2020. I thought, you know, I'll do one or two of these things and I'll go back to normal. But I've literally done pretty much every single episode since. <laughs> I know. We have we have a, um, a raft of new people that have joined the agency over the course of the last sort of 18 months or so. And there are it's been phenomenal to realise how many of those have never been in the office or seen their work colleagues. It's a very, very strange state of affairs that we're all living through at the moment. It is kind of weird, isn't it? My daughter has essentially been in lockdown her entire life. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? I have a friend of mine who's in a very similar position. His little girl was born just after Valentine's Day um, 2020. I wonder if it's going to create a generation of kids with stranger danger and some deep-set fear of... (laughs) crowds and whatnot, you know, and and there's some sort of affinity for wearing masks. It's kind of inevitable that it's going to have some long-term implications, but I'm not entirely sure we know what they are. Although from my own experience at the moment, I'm at home with my husband, um, Martin, and my two girls, Eden and Lily, and what strikes me is that they, not necessarily Martin, but certainly the girls, are considerably more resilient. Than, um, than the adults in the house. I find the whole thing so frustrating and they're just like, oh, well, um, they're connecting with their friends through gaming. They're doing their schoolwork on video. Obviously, the kind of, you know, the pent-up energy is a bit of a, is a, bit yeah, of a challenge yeah, yeah, to manage, sure. but they're choosing a sense of normality, which mm. I think is a really interesting insight into kids and their, their ability to 
whatever is normal to them is normal. Yeah, it's a fascinating insight, isn't it? It's yeah. really, really interesting. Watch. And that might be a really good place to start. Why don't we just go into your background, where it all started for you? I have read that you've wanted to work in the industry since you were about 16. Uh, yeah, you're right. I I decided that I wanted to get into advertising quite early on. And I think it was a slightly confused desire at the time. What I mean by that is that I didn't really differentiate between being in advertising agencies and being in ads. Ah, right. And I think I fancied my chances of getting into ads as a career. And I had a little friend when I was in primary school who was commonly called on to play the little girl in the Mattel Barbie commercials. Oh, and she right. had this incredible, yeah. long, flowing blonde hair. Not that there's any residual jealousy from 30-some <laughs> years ago, but, um, <laughs> you know, there you go. So uh, that's that's what I was interested in. And her, her dad, interestingly enough, was Alan Wooding, who was a creative director, a quite successful creative director in the 80s. So that was kind of my glimpse into this sort of glamorous um, what I perceived to be very glamorous industry. And then at the same time, I loved magazines. I still do, actually. Mm. But there's mm. the glitz and the glamour of all of that and the shiny pages and the beautiful people and the kind of, you know, the the reflection of popular culture yeah. and cool products and packaging and all of that sort of stuff. I just, just was always fascinated with. So I did. I said to my mum and my dad when I was very young, probably 15 or so, this is what I want to do. My mum particularly said that she thought it was a terrible idea and that <laughs> I would um, be surrounded by people. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the language protocols on your podcast are, but I believe, and we can change it later you if you tell me. You can swear your head off, it's fine. No, no <laughs> she problem. said, you'll have no job by the time you're 40 and you'll be surrounded by wankers. <laughs> she and, wasn't um, wrong though, was she? Really? Well, bits, bits of that may have been right, but I might leave which bits to um, to your audience's um, <laughs> decision making to kind of tease that one out for themselves. But oh, I did end great. up doing um, work experience when I was sixteen at BAM SSB, which is a, oh, a long yeah. retired brand, and just completely fell in love with the whole notion that you could be paid for thinking of different solutions to existing problems. And that, to me, is what the essence of creativity was all about. And I, I loved it then, and I still do. Yeah, and you quickly built a career for yourself after your stint. I think you've you went from Campaign Palace and Naked, and then Havas, and eventually led you to. Where did you grow up, though? Did you whereabouts in were you Sydney, Melbourne? Yeah, born in Sydney, born in Balmain. Um, when it was a quite rough working class suburb. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the questions that you said you might ask me was something that people don't know about you. I won the lottery when I was 12 <laughs> on a scratchy <laughs> ticket. Are you serious? Uh-huh. Fantastic. So I went to the local Coles, as you do, on a Saturday morning with my dad to do the, to do the grocery shopping. And I said, can I have a scratchy ticket? And um, he bought me a scratchy ticket and he bought my sister one and I scratched up $25,000, which when I was 12 was a lot of money. And what does um, a 12-year-old do with twenty five grand? I mean, well, it's illegal to claim it because technically it's gambling. So it was immediately my dad's because oh, right. I okay. wasn't old enough to do, to do much with it. It was that win that paid for my school fees. Yep, Balmain, born and bred, very working class, but I got to go to a very fancy school and on mm. the back of my um, my lottery win. So I That's feel like amazing. it was a real sliding doors kind of moment. That's an um, amazing story. Yeah, you yeah it's cool, isn't it? Skeggs, didn't you? Skeggs. I did. I went yeah. to Skeggs yeah. at Darlinghurst. Yeah, fantastic. And one of the – for our North American listeners, Skeggs is one of the – you know, elite and very highly successful in their cohort. They're 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 high performing, and 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 it is quite an elite school and quite an expensive one as well. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because I think there were two parts of that that sort of you know have a quite a formative 
role to play mm. in 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 who I am and where I then um, what I then went on to achieve. And the first was um, the story of the actual scratchy ticket win, which was. Um, you know, I'm, I'm there with a coin scratching off the little foil cover thing that, that covers up the numbers. And I said to my dad, how many, how many do you need to win? And he said, three. And I said, oh, I think I've won $25,000. And he looked at it and he said, no, I don't think so. Take it into the shop and show it to the lady. <laughs> and I said, okay. There must be a mistake here. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. so um, I took it into the shop and I showed it to the lady. And the lady said, no, doll, you haven't won anything. Sorry. And I said, but hang on, look, one, two, three. And then she said, oh, my goodness, you've won $25,000. <laughs> and I fantastic. will forever wonder if that slightly precocious nature of mine, which was to mm. kind of go, uh-uh, you're wrong. I'm, I'm not going to just kind of ride with what authority tells me <laughs> actually mm. meant that I, I got my winnings that day. And I think there's, you know, there's something to be said for that sort of curious, if slightly irritating to parent, I'm sure, mind <laughs> that, I, that had me had me standing up for my rights as a 12-year-old in the newsagent. Um, but equally then going to a terrific school where I met some amazing people and had a brilliant mm. time and just kind of really mm. opened up my yeah. eyes to a whole bunch of different types of career opportunities, what other people's parents were doing, things that I might not necessarily have come across. Um, yeah, yeah. Or maybe I would have not so quickly. When I went to that particular school, it had an incredibly diverse footprint um, in that there were kids coming from all over, um, yeah. all over the state, really. And I think one of the challenges is there is access to seeing what is possible that you might not be otherwise able to, to access so easily. But there's also that kind of counter argument, which is if you work really hard, it is possible regardless of what your background is. Um, and I think, you know, it's quite dangerous to not be exposed to people that don't have as much as you have. So there's a real balancing act. I think it's very difficult. Um, and my daughter is uh, 12 and in year seven. Um, and we, you know, we had all sorts of debates about where to send her and why. But it was, for me, very important to get the right sort of balance between the aspirational aspects of people who have the privilege and the opportunity um, slightly more easily accessible through nature of their lucky birth, shall we say, um, as well as people that are just working incredibly hard to get big dreams done. So, yeah, it's a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. And it is a, such an emotional, at times provocative discussion. I don't have firm beliefs either way. You know, I think there's definite room for meritocracy and there's room for social egalitarianism and so on. So anyway, but that's another long... We're going to get ourselves in trouble if we go too far down that one. <laughs> this is already getting really cool. I love it. Um, who's been some of your biggest influences? What are some of the times or places or people that influenced you? I think I've been really fortunate in that I've come across some absolutely enormous humans in my life in various aspects. And and you know, my dad certainly was one of them. He unfortunately died a few years ago now. But he um condolences. He was thank you. He was a um a real philosopher. He was yeah. a um a, a farmhand. He left school when he was really young. And you know he he went on to to work in sales and then married my mum when she was about 18 and moved out from the UK together to start an entirely new life. One of the many things that he taught me was just a real fascination for humans. <laughs> so he was the kind of guy where you'd go to Woolies. feels like most of my stories about my dad have got some kind of 
Coles Woolies component. They don't. It's <laughs> coincidental. Um, but, you know, you'd be in a shop and um, you'd be paying for your groceries and he'd suddenly say, oh, Martha, how did Joe's piano lessons go? And I'd be like, who's Martha? Who's Joe? Yeah, and it would just yeah. be because he was, he's the kind, he was the kind of person who would have any opportunity for a genuine conversation, conversation. with someone. So mm-hmm. Martha's the, you know, the lady, the checkout lady who's been working at Woolies for 20 years and Joe's her grandson who's doing his piano exams. And somehow my dad knows that, remembers that, asks about that. And it mm-hmm. really just fueled this sense of genuine fascination with humans and human stories and the power that comes from just taking a minute to care. Fantastic, yeah. You said he was in sales? He sold paint for a while paint. in in London. He was in the Birmingham office. Um, my mum was in the London office. They met over the phones, which is a curious story, and then moved out here. He then took himself back to TAFE and subsequently launched his own uh, company as a hydraulic engineer. But he did a lot of things for his, you know, 14 years in formal education and life that started as a farmhand in Birmingham. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah no, he was terrific. Yeah. But there's also just myriad people through the course of my career that have just taken a little bit extra time to kind of mm. listen to what I was trying to do or what I was trying to learn or, you know, reacted with positivity to my kind of endless curiosity about what they were doing and how they were doing it so well. Uh, there was a, a quite young Tim Parker who was the managing director of FCB when I was there, when I had just come fresh out of uni. Um, and he he had come, I think, back from Hong Kong. And he was just the kind of guy who paid attention to the culture of the agency. He took an interest when he didn't necessarily have to. He, he listened to my gripes, of which there were many, um, <laughs> and not about the job necessarily, just about life as a 20-something-year-old yes, trying to trying enough. to get a go. You know, I had huge support from Reg Moses in my time at the Palace, from Mark Sarif, who took me under his wing and said, yes, there is there is a strategist in you somewhere. Let's eke that out. Um, from Mike Wilson, particularly out of the founders at Naked, who I spent 15 years of my career working with and who taught me an enormous amount about what, what good human-oriented leadership looks yeah. like um, and how to make almost every day have at least a, a period of hysterical laughter in it, which is, I think, you know, <laughs> good for the soul and good for the work. Um, and, you know, the the team at Publicis, who I'm relatively new to still, but have really demonstrated what care looks like in relation to running a business. Yes, it's important that we are turning our, our strengths to, to delivering a commercial outcome, which is positive for the agency and positive for the group. But uh, Mike Ribello and Paulie Grant and Henri Raymond, who are basically the three people that lead the whole of the Publicis group for Australia and New Zealand, um, have been an exceptional example of getting the balance right between doing things for profit and doing things for people, mm. um, particularly over the course of the last, you know, 18 months or so. So, yeah, there's lots. There's, you know, myriad examples, I think, of just really, really compelling, um, brilliant people who I've stolen bits and pieces of um, insight and, and repurposed some of their magic in the forging of my own career. Through COVID last year, it was really well. We're still in it, but um, through the you know the the initial stages of COVID, I found myself kind of newly having taken on the CEO position. There were lots of people that didn't really know me very well yet. We were in lockdown. Um, we're all in our houses, um, and I I think 
that the fact that I had spent so long as a communication strategist and was so fascinated about words and how to get those words right was a real um, unexpected asset because I I literally found myself crafting, you know, um, addresses to our team and all staff meetings and thinking very carefully about how do you manage people's emotions when there's so much uncertainty and what can I say to give them as much clarity and remove as much fear as I possibly can without pretending that what is going on in the world is yeah. not going on in the world? And so, yeah, when I, when I first was interviewing for the role, several people said to me, look, chief strategy officers don't make very good CEOs. Um, <laughs> and I said, okay, fair enough, but I'm, I'm going to give why that one that? a crack why, anyway. <laughs> why is there that perception that um... – I suspect because it's almost like why there aren't many creatives who are actually running an agency. Besides David Droger, yeah. you don't find too many creatives actually running the agency. You know, um, I would imagine it's a similar sort of rationale for strategists. You know, it, they like it. Probably is. Mm, mm. And what do you think they lack? I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really hard to step. At your sense of worth as a creative, and I think as a strategist, is based on the outcomes. You know, and the success of those outcomes. And I think there's a lot of. Uh, value placed on that, both internally as well as how you're perceived by your peers. I think it's really hard for people to step away from working in the business to working on it. I think it's um, it's wildly true that the difference between working in the business and on the business is something that, that agencies on the whole don't do a particularly good job of preparing people for. You yeah. are promoted and celebrated and supported to get better and better and better at your craft. And then all of a sudden someone goes, here's 20 people to look after. And you go, uh, but I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and yeah. there's not a lot of training. Well, there's actually much, much more now. But, you know, when I was, you know, coming up through the ranks and, and acquiring kind of people to manage, it was pure instinct. There was just no one sort of sat you down and said, there is another craft skill here, and that's in leadership and management of people. So yeah. you asked me a minute ago about some influences that I've had, and I think some of those influences that I have had from the perspective of luck rather than planning were very, very good leaders and very clear on how you prioritise people and still get to great outputs. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, I don't know. I think for me, I think there's a perception of strategists um, as being a bit ponderous mm. and just thinking about things for ages and luxuriating in the opportunity to kind of think, what if this? What if that? Could we mm. do this? What, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, the reality of being the CEO is – exactly the opposite. So, whereas a chief strategy officer, I would get, you know, I don't know, like a week or a couple of weeks to think about a big challenge on behalf of a client and how we could kind of peel back some layers of the onion and get to the real heart of what the issue is and how we find something that connects with people enough to change the way they behave around that issue. Um, You know, that, that, that thinking time is flipped on its head in that mm. I have a thousand questions a day and about 20 seconds each to think about what's the yeah. best answer. So the, the, the thing that runs through both of those really strongly for me is um, understanding of people and um, instinct. Yeah. I believe that instinct is not m- myth. It's just a very quick shortcut from experience. How do you quantify instinct when it feels like we're talking about the gut feel and so on um, it is quite hard but when you think about it as being an algorithm a hardwired algorithm that took millions of years millions of years yep. to adapt within us as a species 
and you think we've used it to great effect for our own survival and our advancement as a species, why doesn't instinct ever play a large enough role in having these discussions? You know, why can't we just say as professionals, as strategists who are trained both critically and theoretically, why can't we have discussions around instinct when you know, we all, we're all familiar with it? We all have it hard-coded into us. You know, it's a really funny one, isn't it? Because you it's sort of really feel like a bit of a, you feel quite fluffy when you say, "Look, based on instinct and research." X, yeah, y, but Z. then I, I think about it in terms of you know, on occasion, um, someone will come to me and say, um, "We've got this brief. What do you like? What do you what do you reckon? What do you think we should do with this particular challenge?" And I'm comfortable enough in my own skin and in my own levels of experience that if I feel like I know the answer, I'll tell them. Mm. So if I feel like if I was you, I would look in this area, I'd really have a a big think about, you know, whatever it is, issue ABC. And they say, Mm. how did you do that in 20 seconds? And I say, I didn't do it in 20 seconds. I did it in 25 years. Yeah, exactly. That's the manifestation of instinct for me. It's not really just I have a feeling it's just, mm. as you say, this kind of deep wired, I've, I've answered these questions many, mm. many, many, many times. And that experience gives me the right to leapfrog to, a, I think if I was you, I would do this first. It's really quite interesting. It's a similar discussion I've had with people with creativity. Like it's all there, like this common sense survival instinct, whether it be um, directed towards smaller problems that you may face within a marketing campaign, for example, it's still, there's a problem we have to overcome it and our survival not so much survival, but our progression rides on solving this problem, right? So, And you kind of go, it's similar to creativity. Everyone has it, but for some reason we all just sort of stop using that inner or listening to that inner creative voice. I guess um, more of a tangent that I went on, but how do you stop yourself though as the CEO? How do you stop yourself sometimes from just wanting to muck in and do it yourself? <laughs> it's that... <laughs> thing when things get a bit hairy and it all becomes a bit too difficult and deadlines are looming and you go, oh, God, I could just do this. How do you stop yourself? It's a really, really, really good question. I um, <laughs> Sometimes I don't is still the answer. Sometimes I still jump in or wade in or irritate my strategy team by saying, hey, I reckon maybe we should do this. Um, <laughs> they're, they're very accommodating of my desire to still have a connection to the craft that I've spent a lot of my career doing. I love it really deeply. I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, I think it would be a bit wasteful to just say I'm never going to use that yeah. part of my experience yeah, sure. again. But at the same time, I think most leaders have to go through the experience of letting down smart people by not allowing them to do what they need to do in order to realise that sometimes it's not worth it. There's two sides to this conversation, I think. One is if you stay so close that you are not allowing people to function to the best of their ability, they leave because that's demoralising and doesn't get the best out of anyone. People don't learn, people don't grow. Um, You might minimise some mistakes, but you won't maximise someone's potential. It's quite uncomfortable if you think they're wrong. But that brings me to the second part of the equation, and that is people might not do it the way that you would have done it, but they might do it better. And that's a brutal realisation because, as I said earlier, you know, in this industry and presumably in many industries, but I can really only talk with any authority about this one, you are lauded and supported, promoted, all the rest of it for the way that you do things. 
And so yeah. then to let go enough to realize that the way you do things is not the only way that they can be done is quite a difficult thing to do. But again, if you don't do that, I think you compromise your own potential to keep learning and you definitely, definitely compromise you know, the, the opportunity that some brilliant emerging talent around you has to really flex yeah. their muscle. It is an industry that changes all the time. So yeah. therefore, so should the methods by which you get to the answer. So if you don't let that happen, everyone loses. Yeah. But you yeah. just feel like you're in a bit more control. Without going on too much about, oh, let's say the mess you inherited when you started there. So you took that job, you were given the job of pulling together uh, Spark and Match Media you inherited a culture that was somewhat in the doldrums to a certain degree, but you turned that around quite quickly, both from a commercial success standpoint, as well as satisfaction and retention and, and you know, morale has lifted and no easy task given COVID through a massive spanner in the works. You talked about using the right words and we kind of moved on. I mean, what could you have said to make that amazing turnaround within the agency? Well, I mean, the first First thing to say, obviously, is thank you. It, it has been um, a pretty incredible sort of 18 months or so of transformation. I think there was I, – I knew what I was going in there to do. And um, as my first CEO job, I was really motivated by the challenge of bringing two parts of the agency closer together and working through some of the positioning ramifications of that and what that meant for people and what we said about ourselves and who we were. And the reason that I think I was quite motivated by that was because I felt like it was a really good segue from strategy into CEO. It was a good problem. <laughs> yeah, and I felt yeah, like, oh, yeah. I might be able to do that one um, I like that. I think as a, a really, starter really, point. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So work on the positioning, how we're going to position ourselves as exactly. a unified Spark fan. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So we did, um, you know, the other... Uh, there, there was that. So there was kind of this sense that I've got, some, I've got, I actually felt genuinely like I've got some of the skills to be able to address this in the same way that I would use those skills to address a client branding problem and a client positioning problem. Okay. So if I'm inheriting two sides of an agency that are quite different, um, that can make for a really difficult culture that's quite combative between, you know, two ends of the spectrum, or it could turn itself into something completely different um, where this, you know, the, the sum of the parts is, is, is bigger and better. But really, the very first thing we did was the very well, the very first thing I did was just try and listen to what everybody's perspective um, on what had happened uh, was, what their experience was. And in the, some of those were quite difficult conversations because there was, you know, there was still a little bit of duplication in terms of the leadership team. There were, as you pointed out, and as I've said, you know, very different legacies across the two sides of the business. Um, and I think people needed to be heard and then they very quickly needed to see that we were going to do something about it. And so listen and then act. Um, and in the acting, I was very deliberate about involving people from all levels of the agency in some of the big decisions. Um, not lead by democracy, but certainly give people the opportunity to help me build something that they want to be a part of. Because if I did that by myself and then dictated it from on high, it was going to be a disaster. And, you know, the kinds of people that join agencies are smart. Um, they, might, they, they may well be young, but they've got big aspirations. They are lateral thinkers on the whole. They are um, motivated by seeing the impact of their decisions. And so I think it was a lot of it was to do with 
let's listen to what people have got to say. Let's involve them in the process. Let's think about what are the aspects of these two brands that if we built them into, if we brought them closer together, would be differentiating. And then the other thing that is just, I would be enormously remiss of me not to say this, is there were some brilliant, brilliant people in the leadership team already. And there was a lot of phenomenal work that had been done in terms of building the product of the agency. So a lot of it was about positioning, packaging, and then pitching what already existed, but in a new way that felt yeah, much yeah. more cohesive rather than this kind of, you know, battling against the two parts of your, your legacy. Fun, not entirely sure that I'd want to do it again through COVID, but um, certainly it's been really gratifying to see it work. What I love about that as well as the way you started by framing it as a, a problem and a strategist's hat on. Can't help it. <laughs> do you know, I, I find that really interesting and strange that that isn't done more often. And I wonder why. It is so true. It's a strange one, isn't it? I couldn't agree with you more. Like you think about branding agencies that have kind of, you know, mediocre brands or you think mm. about creative agencies that, you know, produce end-of-year videos that are so cringeworthy you couldn't possibly watch them mm. or you think about media agencies that don't use their own skills in terms of how they run recruitment campaigns or, I mean, yeah. there's just myriad examples. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. fascinating. I, I agree with you that we've got this tendency to not use our depth of talent and skills on our mm. own agencies and businesses in the same way that we do on clients. It seems crazy. Marketing, the marketing agencies, you know, just promoting your offering, carving out a point of difference. Well, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head in the, in the end of that sentence there, because it's, it's not, it's, there's no value in promoting something if it's not differentiated. <laughs> yeah. There's no point promoting something if you don't really understand who it is that you are and what your people turn up to do every day, mm, um, you mm. know, beyond the the mechanics of getting great work out the door. There has to be what is it beyond that that keeps them there and motivates them. And a lot of agencies don't spend a huge amount of time on that yeah. because I think we've we've kind of rested on the laurels of it's a pretty sexy industry and for years and years it's been kind of cool and, um, you know, creative services-based jobs are, are – um, interesting and attract uh, charismatic, lots of charismatic leadership. That's not a statement about myself, by the way. That's, <laughs> that's, I've, I've worked for lots of really charismatic leaders. But all of that stuff becomes a little bit of a safety net and then we don't invest the time necessary in saying, yeah, but what do we do that's different mm. to what other mm. agencies do and how do we do that differently and what product yeah. are we developing that allows us to credibly claim that particular position and how are we creating support networks and training opportunities and nurture for the people that are spending very long hours working for us and for our clients and it's not really until you answer those sorts of questions that you can go out there and talk about things other than we won an award which is a reflection of the work we did for someone else not a reflection of the work that we did on ourselves as part of the the positioning and the purpose work, vision and values work that we did very early on after I, I started the role, we also then developed, <laughs> classic strategist, some some strategic pillars and initiatives underneath each of those, which were around people and product and um, profile. People, product, profile, yeah. Uh-huh. And it, they were exactly that. They were about yeah. what are we going to do to make this a place yeah. that people want to come and work at and want to stay at? What are we going to do that is going to continue to enhance our product so that it remains relevant and future focused? What are we going to do once we've done that to announce those things to the rest of the industry in a way that is not just 
look at our new campaign that we just launched. And so yeah, we've, yeah, you know, yeah. over the course of the last year or so, we have launched, sounds funny saying this, I feel like I'm stuck in the 90s. Um, we've launched a blog. And the reason that we've launched a blog is because we're not allowed to launch a website, so I have to call it a blog. Um, let's hope that there aren't too many Spark Foundry listeners in the US and I get in trouble from corporate headquarters. Why, why? Is, that, is that a head office mandate? <laughs> it's because oh. we're not allowed to mess around with the um, with the branding on the website. Oh, fair enough. Um, yes. so, but in that, there is um, a very deliberate mix of what does the industry look like this week? What's my opinion, not mine, but, you know, various people across the the agency, what's their opinion on things that are culturally relevant? We've got stuff in there about COVID. We've got stuff in there about measurement. We've got stuff in there about representation and inclusivity. We've got all sorts of different opinions represented there, which for me is much more of an opportunity to have people see the way that our people think, not only connected to the output that we enjoy delivering on behalf of our clients. So it's a very valid it's a very, very valid point, I think, that agencies aren't particularly good at it. Just switching gears a little bit, but picking you up on the blog, what's the blog called and can the public access it? What's it called? Oh, Spark Foundry blog? Something really entertaining <laughs> like that. But um, <laughs> oh, When you've got a name like Spark Foundry, it's pretty cool anyway. So you don't need to <laughs> It's reasonably cool anyway, that's right. Air. But it's on, a, it's on all of our email signatures and we like sure. to talk about coming to see what the Bright Sparks have got to say this week. Oh, nice. And you talked about you cover everything from industry trends and if we've got Google phasing out cookies, if they've not done that already, there's these wonderful streaming experiments going on like Disney Plus's releasing Black Widow, not through the traditional channels, which we love from a brand building perspective. You know, I think people, marketers, advertisers and publishers are sort of using COVID as an opportunity to test a few things that could change the way we consume media and content for the long run. What are your thoughts on some of these things that are happening in do you cover any of them on your blog as well? <laughs> yeah, no, we cover we cover a lot of those sorts of subjects on on the blog. It really does feel very dated saying the word <laughs> blog, but not to worry, I just have to get over it. There are a few things going on at the moment that I think we probably just need to be mindful of what are we really doing? Like the the heart of what we are tasked with doing is understanding humans, yeah. um, customers uh, and consumers and understanding what it is that, motivates them and how we can provide value. And I think the value equation sometimes gets a little bit lost. Just because there is a new way, a new channel, or just because there is a new piece of technology, or just because there is a way to innovate within an existing channel, if it doesn't, if the value equation is not there for the end consumer, then it's not necessarily a great use of your investment. And I don't always think that we view things through the lens of does that add the kind of value here that means that I can have a disproportionate share of attention because if you're surrounded by a bazillion and that's what it feels like messages on any day through any device through everywhere you look then the ones that make the biggest difference are the ones that understand their customer best and can deliver value or the promise of that value through the connection points that they choose to be in and that's not for me always the case. The, the cookie conversation is an interesting angle to take on that kind of insight in that the technology is there to be able to unearth people at an almost one-to-one basis. But if you do that and you do it without thinking about what that interaction means for that human, you're no better off than plastering messages all over the universe and hoping for the for the best. I think in we used to call it spray and pray <laughs> media mm. planning, which was just mm. like wherever I can yeah. get it to hope that someone sees it. So 
for me, I'm not particularly worried about the end of cookies because I think it forces people to be a bit more strategic, which clearly, given my background, is an area that I've got huge faith in. And what I mean by that is if you understand the context of someone, um, the context someone is in, the mindset they're in when they're consuming a particular piece of content, what they want from an interaction then you can presumably have a greater impact in that moment than you can simply by understanding exactly who they are from mm. a demographic mm. point of view. Yeah. So I think it forces us to use some of those skills, which I, would, which I would really hate to see fall by the wayside, which are about understanding the human, understanding that moment, understanding what you can give them in that moment, understanding why you have the right to interrupt whatever it is that they're doing. Thinking a bit more deeply about that will lead to better work and more resonance in the moments that you choose to show up. There's this temptation to go after the shiny new tech movements and, and the bells and whistles, but I think what I'm hearing you say is the fundamentals, strategically sound, long-term, balanced with short-term fundamentals really won't change. It's what do we want for the long-term and what are the smaller little interactions that I'm going to derive some value from within this context of this time period, within this channel and this set of circumstances. What is it that I need right now from that human perspective? And it's really not that complex. Complicated, but I think we tend to think that those complexities are new and they need a new tool to be able to to solve for them, you know, which obviously isn't always the case. No, but that's also not to say that sometimes that new shiny thing might be the right solution. It's just it has to be the right solution because it's right, not yeah. because it's new. I love that. I love that. It has to be the right solution because it's right, not because it's new. That's a really good way of framing it, isn't it? I, I love that. That's really nice. I just made it up, so you can have it. <laughs> that could be your bite of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. I was just touch on a different uh, or an additional kind of area, I suppose, that you mentioned then, and that is, you know, this sort of long-term, long-term brand building versus short-term acquisition. And I feel like they don't need to be in a fight. And no. whenever you hear mm. about, you know, industry coverage of those sorts of topics, it, it always feels like quite an antagonistic one or the other. And I don't really mm. believe that that's true. But it's not the way we consume, is it? It's like no. mindset. It's like sometimes we'll be in a long-term thing, depe- depending on what it is I'm looking to achieve. Or sometimes I might ebb and flow between that long-term thought and I might envision myself buying it tomorrow. Yeah, right? though, that's I can absolutely envision, right. I can envision getting closer to it at any given time. And I, I think that even- the, the deeper – the deeper driver there, though, for me, and it's been something which has become increasingly apparent through the course of the last 18 months and COVID and that sort of thing is just the real desire for certainty. A lot of our clients, and I understand and respect it wholeheartedly because they, a lot of our clients have been in a position where, you know, they've seen their revenues significantly impacted. They've seen their people really impacted by what's gone on. They've, you know, we've got a lot of clients in travel that have had an absolutely horrific time oh, over the last 18 yeah. months. And so if they're going to invest in marketing spend, they want to know what they're going to get back because they need it back to pay for the people that they're trying to maintain jobs for. Like it's a pretty simple but Mm. really meaningful equation. But the worry I've got is that it's it's just easier to prove short-term acquisition than it is long-term brand effect. But that doesn't mean that it's more powerful. If only you could measure the brand effect on that incremental level, like every three months or something like that, as opposed to half yearly or yearly. And if you think you've only got three months or six months to make a commercial impact, you can only measure the commercial impact within the timeframe you have. So it becomes completely Mm -hmm. self-fulfilling at risk of sounding like a plug. One of the things that I inherited at Spark was just a really embedded, very highly skilled data and analytics team. 
and they've, mm. they'd been in the business for over a decade, which is quite quite an unusual mm. reality because most agencies are outsourcing it or they have a specialist division that services multiple agencies or something. Well, you know, with my work hat on, and you do partner with Macquarie University, which is where I work, not that this blog, I mean, blog. <laughs> now you've got me, I'm calling my podcast a blog. Uh, but <laughs> it's contagious. <laughs> not that this podcast is a Macquarie University one, uh, but I was so impressed with your group of scientists, for lack of a better word. They weren't your traditional, I guess, uh, media or advertising analysts. They were or researchers. They really came from a, a scientific perspective, and they could mm. be working at MIT or they could be working at Apple. They just so happened to be working at Spark well, Foundry. Extremely pleased really, that they are working really, for us. Yes, really, really interesting. Yeah, but anyway, that was just a side note. What makes for a good client, though? Would you say? I think it has to start with value alignment. The way you work and why you work and what it is that you deem success to look like has to be something that is explicit and shared. And if it's not, it can be a very difficult relationship from the get-go. A lot of people say, you know, that you get the answer that your brief deserves. And that kind of implies that if a client doesn't understand their problem, you're not going to get a great solution. say it? Shit in, shit out? (laughs) Well, there is that. But I'm going to be a little provocative and say, I don't think that's always true. I think Sometimes you don't know what the problem is, but if you are open-minded enough and you have enough trust in an agency relationship where you can tap into those minds to help you determine what that challenge is, if you're open to that and, and you know, you've got a, um, a relationship that can facilitate it, then you can get to really interesting places. How would you feel, though, if your client said, look, I think these are the problems we're facing and we're not 100% certain, can you help us? How would you feel about a client if they came to you with that sort of challenge? Um, it's it's rare, but it has certainly happened. I think what you've got to then do is be very, very honest about what you can and cannot impact. So if there is um, a sense that at a senior executive level within an organisation, they don't align, you don't think you've got the same problems as your, you know, your, your, your most senior people in your organisation have, we can't solve that. We might be able to get you to a place where we say, okay, so what can we furnish you with to get these people on board to this conversation? Because otherwise we're at risk of wasting our time and yours, um, pursuing something that might be right, but for whatever reason, you don't have the buy-in of the people that will ultimately determine our success and yours. So Mm -hmm. why don't we focus on that first? (laughs) And then once we've got that, we can, we can spend some time thinking about what the, the challenges are. I think agencies, this is a lot of this is my, Uh, my experience from the Campaign Palace and my experience from Naked, there are very expansive thinkers in agencies. Mm. Um, I think I said it earlier on, but creativity is effectively looking at the same problem and coming up with a different solution. So if you have people who are built like that sitting in agencies, they are good for more than is asked of us. You know, we have diverse skill sets, increasingly diverse people and backgrounds and perspectives but there's still a way to go. Work to be done, yeah. But I think, you know, if you sometimes, if you're looking at your own issue constantly, you start to lose the ability to see through it and out the other side. Grab a bunch Mm. of people from your agency, stick Mm. them around the table, have an honest conversation about what some of those challenges are. And we might not be right, but we'll certainly provoke some different thought Mm. processes. 
Yeah, that's really good advice for our clients out there for sure. Yeah, why do we use our agencies for the outputs that um, we spit out from our marketing briefs? You know, why why not use them to help solve some of the gnarly business problems that we might might be facing that live further up the chain, even beyond marketing? So I think that's a really good, really yeah. good challenge. Yeah, um, it's a real driver for most of the people in the agencies. So it's really motivating to think that you can make that kind of significant difference. A lot of our point of difference is, as you know, you pointed it out earlier, there is a really amazing bunch of um, analysts who come from really weird, if I'm honest, backgrounds, you know, mechanical engineers and all sorts of stuff like that. But it's the combination of those guys, our technical skills and our strategic skills that mean that, you know, you can pretty much crack open any problem. You can't solve all of them mm. and agencies don't have the remit to um, to solve all of them, but you can get to the heart of it and you can also start to build a framework that proves what works. Through COVID, one of the things that clients needed from us more than anything was a sense of certainty and, you know, we spent a huge amount of time and effort building tools um, that aggregated different types of data sets to be able to give you a sense of uh, anything from, you know, when should someone go back into market through COVID, looking at medical skills, sorry, medical skills, that's not what I meant, medical data, um, publicly available uh, kind of caseloads, particular client references, all sorts of things that just gave people a little bit more of a scientific take on what yeah. to do to navigate the pandemic, but equally just around things like the business results of the investment choices that we make on our clients' behalf and how can we really quantify the difference that agencies are making. So there's yeah. a, it's a huge part of what our agency focuses on. Now, you were part of the publicist group. Now, obviously, Saatchi and Saatchi and Leo Burnett and a whole bunch of agencies, uh, production agencies like um, Prodigious and whatnot are within that wonderful new building down down on Harris Street yeah, it's in gorgeous. Piemont. It's a beautiful building. I have been lucky enough to be in both um, your office and Mike Spurko's office. Spurko and I are good mates from way back. How do agencies, creative agencies and media agencies work best together? Like you, I went to ad school back in the day, probably just after creative and media aspects of advertising sort of went in their own different directions. But the academic aspects were still quite unified in, in that um, it was this perfect marriage. It's the message and the medium. And together, they both bring an idea that will amplify uh, that message and have it resonate far stronger than if you're the creative agency focusing on the creative in isolation and you're the media agency going off and focusing on the medium in isolation. What does a successful creative and media agency partnership look like? I wouldn't have made some of the choices I've made in, in my career and worked to the kinds of agencies that I've worked with if I didn't think that bringing um, the medium and the message together is mm. part of a recipe for more effective campaign work. I mean, I do. I fundamentally believe it. The conversation we're having earlier about not being particularly worried about the end of cookies because it'll force people to think about context is, you know, in part demonstration of the fact that I am definitely a believer in, in that creates stronger work. But the provocative part of my answer is that, yeah, I'm just old enough to have been in my first job in a creative agency that had a media department in, oh gosh, 1998, 99 just before media agencies split themselves off. I, I think <laughs> those agencies split themselves off because they, frankly, just were really just completely pissed off with the false hierarchy that dominated agency yeah. discussions at that time. So when I say it's better now, in some senses it is because what has happened over the course of the last 25 years or so 
is that that incredible hierarchy of, you know, you can't talk to the creative teams. You have to knock on the door at 11 o'clock. You've got five mm. minutes before they go to lunch and you're not allowed to address anyone by their first name and you have to look at the floor while you do so. I am exaggerating, <laughs> but only a little. No, I get it. I get um, it. I get it. Yeah. That culture doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and thankfully so, right? I mean, really. Yeah, it just it, – I was very fortunate in that the agencies that I worked in and the creative people I had access to at FCB and then at the Palace – and then at Naked, that kind of bullshit hierarchy was not part of those cultures. And the fact that I was really, even even as a, you know, a media, media junior very early on, um, I was very fortunate to be embraced by my creative colleagues who were like, who is this girl who keeps going, what about this? What about this? <laughs> Have you fantastic. thought about that? Yeah. Um, and I think that I was a little bit of a curiosity. But very, very early on in my career, it became clear to me that there is value in understanding what it takes for somebody else to do their best work. And the time I have spent in strategy-only agencies, in creative agencies, in full-service agencies, in media agencies, in all sorts of different types of agencies, one of the great gifts that's given me is a real understanding of the process it takes for different disciplines to work at their best. And if you want to get the best out of other agencies in coalition, you need people who care and respect the process of getting to good work across different agency groups. Mm, so mm. what I mean is, you know, it's it's really easy to say, oh, bloody hell, creative you know, the creative teams come up with a 60-second commercial. This is ridiculous. It's it's only going to be run on five-second bumpers. They're idiots. Mm. Not true. What is it that they can't communicate in five seconds, that they need 60 seconds to communicate? Can you help them find the context that is right for that? Mm, mm. Are they going to listen to you when you say, guys, I've got this really cool idea that is born of the fact that I know exactly where this audience is in physical yeah. location or in, you know, the mental state they need to be in to be making this purchase or whatever it might be. Can we build something that would work in that environment? If it's not about mutual respect, you've got Buckley's of making it work. So the hierarchy might be gone, but if you are not invested in listening and actively helping to navigate through the mess because it's a mess, it just is, then it's not going to work. And for that to really work, you need clients who are completely on board with that too. Yeah. You know, that process is really mucky. You can have multiple meetings where you're kind of sitting there going, ah, I don't really know what the answer to this is. And these, you know, what we think is really important feels at odds to what you think is really important. If you push through that and you do it genuinely together. I think that's really important. I, I find that clients, for some reason, do tend to default to two things. One, the creative execution far too quickly. They default to execution and having discussions around tactics and the channels. And I don't think if you want to be a, a good client, you should be having those discussions so soon. Um, obviously, there's room for those discussions down, down the line where there needs to be, but by the time we get to those discussions, we should trust that our agencies, they should have figured out those things long before. You know, we get well, hope, hopefully we're being paid to do what we understand, yeah, right? right? You, you know, and you must have encountered this time and time again. You know, you, you're at the strategic level and the client goes straight to the execution and you're like, guys, 
we'll get there. Trust me. But it's natural, though, right? Because it's much easier yeah. to have an opinion on something that feels concrete yeah. and ideas yeah. and territories and those sorts of you know the initial stages of the process that we work through feel quite theoretical and I guess kind of esoteric sometimes. So you know, there's a very simple practice that we developed at Naked for making sure that you were talking about an idea not an execution. And that was that you were never allowed to present an idea as a script. You had to present it as a sentence. Yeah, I love it. And if you can't present it as a sentence, it's probably not a big enough idea. Brilliant. I always like to define the issue as a sentence. You know, whenever I do anything, I kind of, someone used to call it a logline. Because it kind of takes away that natural tendency. And it is natural to go, oh, I don't know if it should be that blue. What? What's that got to do with the idea? Because, you know, that's what people do, not because they're being deliberately um, obtuse or difficult, just because, as I said, it's much easier to feed back on something concrete. And so if you are forced to say, what is the idea in a sentence is a very simple but wildly useful tool. And you can even do it after the fact, you know, and if someone's presenting something to you and you're kind of going, this has gone straight into a a script, it's a, this is an outdoor execution, or this is a print, or this is a TVC or whatever, you can ask them to tell you what the idea is in a sentence and just lift it, lift it a bit up out of the the details of how it might actually appear to Mm. make sure that you've got the insight and you've got the thought right before you start spending millions of dollars producing stuff. I know you're actively involved and you're on the board of numerous organisations. I'm on the board of the Media Federation of Australia, which is um, my first board appointment. You know, that's been a really interesting exercise for me. And and last year was an excellent time to be appointed to that board because I got Mm. to see the best of the industry, I think. You know, it's a very, very competitive uh, industry that we work in. You know, there is lots of discussion about people poaching one another's staff and clients oh, right. constantly being eked away at the edges to see where are they going to go next and pitches that cost a huge amount of money. Well, there's a lot of discussion around ethical pitching. I, I think mm. I might be using the wrong term. I think um, there was a few people, Baxter and who else, a few others on that board or that initiative to try and ensure that there is yeah. some code that- of conduct around pitching that clients can agree to. And, Which has now and actually been executed through a combination yeah. of the AANA and the MFA. So, um, yeah. there is sort of a, you know, some guidelines around what fair pitching um, looks like or um, we're, we're certainly getting there in respect to that, to that sort of thing. Um, that was Baxter um, was actually one of the founders of Naked, so I worked with him for a good time That's right. a few years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, he he came out, I think it was Mumbrella, maybe 2019, with his big push to ditch the pitch. Mm, that's um, right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's typical Baxter in that it's, um, it's catchy and it's a big, bold statement. Um, I don't think we're going to ditch the pitch entirely, uh, but I do think that there are ways to make it a more effective and less taxing operation for everybody involved, um, for sure. But, you know, that... What, what I was um, just going to say about the MFA last year is that it really, because the industry was in such turmoil, because the world was in such turmoil, I got to see the best of what can happen if you have otherwise deeply competitive forces come together for the, for the, for the, better, the betterment of the industry and the people within it. There were a lot of initiatives that were developed last year which were really about, you know, providing mentorship for people that had 
lost their jobs, providing free training and access to people that were out of work now but didn't want to get out of the industry. Mm. Um, a lot of things which had a real collective community spirit about them, which is pretty mm. unusual in advertising agencies. Well, it is really. And it goes back. You could probably say to your you say to your mum when she said to you as a sixteen year old that it's filled with wankers and no one's over forty, but. <laughs> It's sort of, it was probably, you know, what do they say? These sort of circumstances bring out the best in people, you know. It's like if you want to really test the mettle of your people, then throw a big challenge their way, a real gnarly problem like COVID-19. That'll really show the true character of those who work with you or who you're surrounded by, right? I mean, it's all great to be nice and friendly when things are going well. It's so funny, isn't it? Because we're not very nice and friendly when all things are going well. That's funny, we though, were isn't much, it? We were much nicer and friendlier when things were going really, really badly and really no one badly. quite knew whether or not we were all going to come out the other side. Yeah, we're a cynical bunch. I mean, it's just by the nature of being strategic and creatively minded, right? But, I mean, when what I really liked about all this is when the shit hit the fan, how open and empathetic everyone seemed to be in an industry that it didn't otherwise present that way. You know, you just look at campaign brief at any given moment and I just go there for the comments. It's just freaking awesome. I think you know, there's but, quite a few people that just go there for the comments. Yeah. <laughs> it's um it's a it's a brutal testament to just how vile yeah, we is. can be on occasion. Uh, totally. Look, I understand it. I'm coming to the end of the one hour block. Um I promised I'd take you for and I will um I will let uh, Emily have you back. But look, why don't we just um, – I just wanted to finish off on if you could give 16-year-old Imogen a little bit of a bite of wisdom on what it takes to build a successful career in this industry and become a successful leader in it as well. I think if I had that opportunity, I would tell myself that, one, it's actually going to be fine because I think I spent a lot of time worrying about whether or not things were going to work out for me in any shape or form. (laughs) Um, So it's going to be fine that your instincts are good, that opportunities should be taken, uh, and that if you do things with people at heart, they will repay you in spades. Can we use that as your bite of wisdom, the tail end of that? So if you do things with people at heart, they will repay you in spades. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. Imogen, it has been an absolute pleasure. I wish no, it was I could good take fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it's great. We'll have to do a part two. I think we only just started. <laughs> we only got started. But um, where can people find out more about you, Imogen? Where do we go to learn more about Spark Foundry? Well, we, as I said, we've got the now notorious blog, um, which you can certainly subscribe to. Um, it's it's best accessed probably through LinkedIn, actually, at the moment. So there's a sure. lot of our content that's republished on LinkedIn. You can follow us there. Um, you know, we, we're doing our best to add in a meaningful way to the trade press so you can get a glimpse of what our fabulous folks think about any number of topics. You know, it's Spark Foundry. Type it into Google. You'll find us. (laughs) We have the ways, we have the means, we have the tools. That's right. Um, Awesome. And uh, this isn't a blog, it's a podcast. And thank you so much for being on it. (laughs) (laughs) My absolute pleasure. Thank you for talking. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Imogen. And um, stay safe. And, uh, yeah, we'll speak to you soon. I'll go and work out what my children were trying to bug me for a minute ago. (laughs) Cheers. All the best. See you later. See ya. Awesome. That was great. That was great fun. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me. 
and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers.